1: Alrighty, folks, we've got an interesting show for you today. Um, those of you that ever worked with exterior work, and, and when I'm talking exterior work, primarily limestone, and we're talking repair as well as replacement, and I have an interesting guest today and an interesting project. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction into this particular project, and also I'm going to talk a little bit about the type of limestone Um I was called in by a, by a homeowner in Western North Carolina who had a very large chalet, uh, something like, I think it was like 11,000 square feet. And Correct me if I'm wrong there, Kenneth. Uh, huge, huge house. And uh, it's all clad in what was called, and I may be screwing up this pronunciation, but I'll spell it as way, well, a lecce limestone, L-E-E-C-E. It's an Italian limestone, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the entire house was clad in it as well as the decks, and the deck was the one of the major problems here that we'll get into. But anyway, I was called in to do an inspection because primarily this homeowner had an issue with the decks. It was getting all kinds of mold and algae growing and all kinds of biological growth. He tried everything to clean it and couldn't keep it clean, and it was a real, real issue. So when I went to inspect it, uh, I, I looked at the deck, but we also found some other interesting problems as well, which we'll get into here in a minute. Um, but anyway, I went back and I did some research on this particular leche stone. And this is a great example of, you know, one of, one of my pet peeves, obviously, is, you know, quality of stone, you know, that, that's a crappy stone or whatever. And, and I don't believe there is such a thing as a crappy stone. <laughs> However, there are issues where certain types of stone should not be used. This Lecce stone comes out of South Italy. It's a very popular stone in South Italy, but it's a what I call a climate-oriented stone, whether that's the proper terminology or not. But it's, it's generally used in warm climates, not in a four-season climate like this stone is used. And it has all kinds of problems. So when researching this, I'm saying to myself, well, is it just me? Is that just my opinion? You know, what the heck do I, am I talking about? And actually, there were some studies done. And one of the studies was done by uh, the Geological Society of London special publication. And you can look this up or if you send me an email, I can I can actually link you to the, send you the link to the site. But I'll read you the first sentence of the report. The first sentence or first two sentences actually uh, says lecce stone is a fine biocast widely used in Salento region, southern Italy, as a constituent material on large scale built cultural heritage. Okay, fine. This next sentence is is the sentence that got me. The stone is affected by serious deterioration problems such as allobetalization and biological attack. So I I had to look up what allobetalization means, and it has to do with the lungs. So I'm I'm assuming it has something to do with cutting this this, this material. But the thing that got me was biological attack, and that's exactly what happened here. So long story short, uh, there were several issues, obviously, the deck was an issue with this biological growth the drainage sucked <laughs> to put it uh, basically i mean water wasn't draining properly the drains were the wrong size and uh ken will get into that here in, in a minute as as to what they what they did uh there so we have all these balconies throughout this entire house and then i noticed there were some issues with the limestone on the facade itself there were issues with spalling issues, uh, they had these little uh, corbels that were uh, in several locations. They weren't attached properly, and actually, they were falling off. As a matter of fact, during one of the inspections that I went there, we just tapped it with a, just a light tap, and it fell off right into my hand. So, anyway, so, again, long story short, uh, that's a little bit of the history. Um, when I got done with the inspection, I wrote a report, and now the next question was, who do we get to do all this work? Who can we find? So I went on a, on a hunt to try to find someone that could do this work. Not only did I need a good restoration guy, I needed a good installer, a guy that was familiar uh, with installing uh, exteriors. And I searched and searched and searched, found all kinds of guys that claimed they could do it, but I really wasn't impressed with them. And then I came across my near-dear friend now, Ken Lambert with uh, Blue Toolbox, uh, called him. Uh, we met out there. Uh, looked at the project. Long story short, he got the job, and he did a fantastic job. If you guys ever need any kind of exterior work, restoration work, um, you know, installation work, um, Ken is from I guess from Charlotte all the way into the mountains of uh, uh, North Carolina. He's the man to call. So, with that, let me introduce Ken. Ken, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Fred. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're the only person that I let call me cannons because I like you so
1: much. But for the rest of the world, I'm kinda Oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, <laughs> I just I just won't call you late for dinner. How's that? <laughs> that hey,
2: that that's fine with me.
1: Yeah. And
2: uh, yeah, the house uh, was actually seventeen thousand square feet.
1: Oh, okay, bigger than I thought. It was big. <laughs>
2: wow. <clears throat> yeah, seventeen thousand um you could you could ron would the homeowner would tell you that it's maybe closer to eighteen thousand, depending upon wow. how you measured it wow
1: it, it's definitely a castle well i guess it technically it's a, it's a french chateau is that i think that's what the the architectural designation is anyway i, I don't know but uh so so tell me uh yeah what what was your first impressions when you saw this project
2: Well, my first impressions, and and I'll touch on the the stone as well, because I really liked what you said, that there's not necessarily a bad stone, but there is improper use of stones. And where this stone comes from, as you said, in Lecce, Italy, it is formed in a very mild environment. You know, the average temperature ranges from 40 to 89 degrees, and they get minimal rainfall only about 20 inches a year. Um, compared to our limestone here in the United States, it's formed up around Indiana in really harsh environments. You know, temperatures are well below freezing. They get a lot of rain. The limestone here is very dense. The limestone that comes from there is, is much more similar in makeup to what we might call a sandstone, it's right? Really soft, and it's, it's famous among artists over there because of how easy it is to carve. And so that is what we you know, found on this seventeen thousand square foot structure in the Western North Carolina mountains. So we've taken a stone out of its natural environment and putting it into something that it is not used to. And we saw that you and I both saw that immediately when we first got there.
1: Absolutely. So looking at the project for the first time, what, what did you see? I mean, obviously I, I went over some of it, but from your eyes, did you see the same thing I saw? Did you see additional issues? Well, I know you saw additional issues yeah. that you got into the work, but.
2: <laughs> yeah. I saw the same things that you did um, as far as the facade, the vertical services, the cracking and spalling. I, I wouldn't say that was, because of the stone that was more because of improper insulation no one had accounted for movement anywhere in this project there were there were no movement joints movement in terms of from water and then expansion and contraction from temperature so movement all across the board um so that was all the cracking is falling on the vertical surfaces was just from the house moving and no account of, uh, of movement. Right. And then, you know, the, the flat surfaces, there was almost everything that could be wrong. There was wrong from an installation mm-hmm. yep. perspective, lack of water control, lack of movement, uh, improper slope and it's just everything. Um, and so I knew immediately that all of that was going to have to be taken up, from the, the porches, the balconies, the steps, every, you know, flat walkable surface was going to have to come out. There was no way to do any kind of repair there.
1: Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I saw as well. And, uh, you know, even if, even if the stone was, uh, I, I want to use the word cleanable or, or repairable from that biological growth material, uh, we would have had these other issues as well. So it, it was a failure waiting to happen. So it, it, it's it's a good thing we did what we did. So uh, they, oh, also you, didn't you see some gutter issues or some water drainage issues as well? Yeah, and well, that that
2: was a big thing. Uh, there was, and, and one of the habits that I've developed, and I think everyone should do this when it comes to exterior work is when you're out there on a nice sunny day, which is when everyone wants to look at the job site. There's a lot of issues that you can see but control in terms of water coming off of the roof, water coming off the building, what happens when it rains, how is that water collected, directed, and where does it end up? The best way to assess that is to show up in a rainstorm. Yep. And, you know, fortunately in Western North Carolina, it rains a lot. So I was able to go over there in some really severe rainstorms and just walk around the building and see what was happening to the water as it was coming off the roof and falling onto all the walkable surfaces, and we had a lot of issues to correct there. We spent a lot of time up on the roof, in the valleys, you know, adding flashing, modifying flashing, uh, affixing gutters, you know, behind um, in the the parapet walls. A big issue we found there is that they had brought the the slate shingles, for example, and then the stone of the parapet wall. It was too close together, so it was holding a lot of organic material up there, leaves, sticks, and all that stuff just collects and holds water. And then it becomes compost. And then you have liquid compost running down over the the (laughs) facade of the building, creating all these these crazy stains that, that you saw, and it's being absorbed by this stone. So we had to do a lot of modification up there to, to that the building wouldn't hold organic material as the leaves were falling.
1: Right. Now, on the decks, we, we made a choice, or actually I recommended initially that, let's tear that up due to several issues that we just talked about. And we they, they liked the look of that particular stone, so my recommendation was let's use Indiana limestone. Indiana limestone has a history here in the United States. It has a history of being used throughout the, you know, northern environment with, you know, freeze-thaw whatever. So they ended up choosing, uh, choosing that. So talk a little bit about your thoughts on the Indiana limestone spec.
2: Indiana limestone and their spec, you know, Indiana limestone, they have a handbook that they've been producing since the early 1900s, right. if not before then on how to successfully install stone in an outdoor environment. So a lot of times on these outdoor applications I will defer to their handbook as opposed to the NTCA handbook for example, they're both they're both great and sometimes we end up combining the, the two methods uh, somehow into something that works for the particular project. But what we did here, Indiana limestone um, was was absolutely the best fit for this project because of, again, how the rock has formed and the environment that the rock has grown up in, so to speak. It's very similar right. to the environment of western Asheville. It's a very dense stone. It's going to handle the freeze-thaw, but you you have to set the stone up for success as well and make sure that your preparation and installation is doing its job there's no stone in the world that will overcome a poor installation.
0: It may Absolutely. last a
2: little bit longer than some stones, but eventually you're going to have to you're going to have problems that you that you'll deal with. Right. So we you followed know, little... Indiana limestones. Go
1: ahead. Okay. No, no, I was going to no, finish your thoughts. I'm going to add something else to the limestone issue as well.
2: I said so. We, we followed. Um really indiana limestone specs on this you know once we got everything torn out the big thing is, is slope the water has to go the right direction yep so we we got all that going and for that for the slab on gray for all of it we use a product called deep patch from surecrete uh, to get the slope and then what indiana limestone recommends and we really went overkill on this project Is, you know, say you're doing slab on grade, you know, they recommend a Master Seal 582 or something like that. Put that on the slab and then coat the back of the stone with it as well. And that's a foundation waterproofing. So we did that, but we also added a drainage mat uh, as well to just whisk the water out from underneath the stone uh, as quickly as possible.
1: Great. Yeah, I was going to add, too, for those of you that that haven't worked with Indiana limestone, uh, something occurs to Indiana limestone after installation. Sometimes it shows up immediately. Sometimes it it, it takes a while to show up, and that's what they – well, what the old-timers used to call quarry sap, uh, but sometimes you'll get this brownish uh, discoloration that occurs on the surface. That's temporary. Uh, That happens a lot with Indiana limestone. Uh, and generally, just rainwater over time will wash it away and we we did see a little bit of that i think after after your, a couple months after you were complete but i I didn't see anything major, did you no
2: very very minimal uh and a lot of that I think comes from the from the addition of the drainage mat and the water control that we had you know we we were controlling the the moisture so well that it that it mitigates some of that natural incurring. Now,
1: you know, while you're talking about, let's talk about two additional things since we're on the water issue. Uh, let's first talk about the drains. Uh, you mentioned the drainage, Matt. What about the uh, the other drains? You know, the actual PVC drains or the drill? Well, you did something really interesting with the drains. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> you almost need pictures to describe this, but Instead of the water flowing off of the porches and off of the balconies, they had line drains built into everywhere. So the water on all of this exterior application was flowing to drains. And on the front porch specifically and the back porch, you'll remember this, yep. the, the trench drains were going nowhere. Right, <laughs> They had a, a sand and gravel base underneath the slab and all, they just cut a, a slot in the slab and had all the water rolling off the porches into the sand and gravel underneath the slab. So it's just sitting there, creating all these moisture I- issues and leaching all these minerals back up through the slab and through the stone. So we actually had to fabricate our own PVC trenches to drop into these slots to catch the water, and then core drill the granite facade that was underneath the limestone, and add several outlets for the for the water to get it outside of the structure. Right.
1: Yeah, I thought that was. I thought that and, was.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, Sorry. yeah, that
1: needed to be that. Yeah, that needed to be done because otherwise we would end up with the same situation again, that water backing up.
2: Yes. And we have these uh, drain frames that we've been fabricating ourselves for quite a while now because we've more often than we should, we find outdoor structures with drains in them. And, you know, once it's built, It's kind of have to think similar in most cases. So we've become very good at at doing that and overcoming many of the problems that are associated with drains in an outdoor application. And we have these drain frames that we've been fabricating for quite some time now, Mm -hmm. welding up one of the guys that works with me is a very, very good welder. Uh, We're working on a project right now where we're doing something similar. And so we'll custom build these drain frames
1: for uh, each project that we're on. That's great. You know, you had mentioned a minute ago about some of this is hard to picture without seeing pictures, and uh, we're going to put together a video here real soon, you and I, on uh, uh, probably just post it on YouTube and your website, and we'll talk about your new website in a minute, um, of this project, so you can see what we're talking about, maybe some close-up details of the drain or whatever, but but... Be prepared for that. Keep in touch, keep in touch with me folks and uh keep an eye on the websites and uh, uh when we get those up there it'll it'll take a little bit of time because we, we've taken I know I've taken thousands of pictures, and I know you have too, <laughs> so we have to go, go through all all those as well all right one another thing I want to talk about, and uh that is did we did you end up sealing these decks at all, and what I mean by sealing is using an impregnator or something like that or not?
2: No, no, not at Yay. all. And
1: okay, well, <laughs> tell us why. <laughs> tell us
2: why. Is that a trick question, Fred? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> no, and, and I actually, uh, and, and this this goes back to Indiana limestone specs here. Indiana limestone, ninety nine percent of the time, does not recommend the use of sealers. Amen. Um, <laughs> The sealers, I think, can be fine when used for what they're intended to be used for, but I think probably 99% of the time they're not used correctly, and uh, they get used as a Band-Aid more often than not. But, no, we we did not use any kind of sealers, and it's important for the stone to be able to to breathe. Uh, People use sealers, and in their mind they – use it to prevent water from penetrating the stone and that that can't happen first of all and i'll let you explain this much better than than i can well that's why long I story short <laughs> the stone needs to be able to breathe yes and and it especially, needs to be able to dry
1: yep especially in an exterior you know exterior and and in wet areas i mean you know seals are fine for countertops interior floors but when it comes to exterior stuff and you folks i actually did a podcast on that whole subject if you want i actually have an article uh that i published on that very very topic and uh, you can either look on my website i've got a bunch of articles posted on there now um and uh you we can get into that a little little bit a little bit more but let's back up a little a little bit and one thing we didn't talk about is what size material did we use on these decks now what were the size of the tiles we used just so people know, get kind of get a visual
2: Well, we we did the Versailles pattern, so we were anything from 8 by 8 up to 18 by 24. Okay, good. And then it it varied in thickness. Uh, On a lot of the decks, we were three-quarters in thickness where we could get by with a thicker material. We used that.
1: Perfect. And as far as... um... Uh, anything you want to say about demoing the old stuff out? Did you find anything interesting in the old Indian that had pennies or something? I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's not that old. (laughs) No. Yeah.
2: Well, the major thing, I knew that the substrate underneath the mud and the stone was, was going to be flat or at least I assume from my, you know, the few uh, demolition tests that I had done, uh, what we found in many cases was that it was actually worse than flat and that it was sloped back towards the house. Uh, So they had, you know, the balconies, for example, all of those were sloped back towards the doors. And they'd taken this concrete that was sloped the wrong way and then tried to just slope the stone in the mud bed to overcome it. But, you know, that doesn't work because you do get a certain amount of water down into the mud bed. Even if 90% of the water flows off the top, you know, that 10% that's wicking down into the mud bed now has no place to go. And we found it during the demolition, just sitting against the structure of the house, uh, creating mold, mildew, growth, and then pushing all of that back up through the rock.
1: You know what would you say just to give the folks some some idea? Uh, you remember how many square feet of decking there was?
2: We had, I'm going to say about five thousand
1: square yeah, feet my, of
2: stone altogether.
1: Yeah, that would be. Does my that guess. sound right? Yeah, that's how I was going to say. That's about and what then, I thought it then, would be. Yeah,
2: and then plus the stair treads. So yeah, I was going to I going to ask you about that. What the, did we do the with the demolition? Stair treads? well we ordered a two inch tread material from indiana limestone anywhere from six to eight feet long Uh, and a big part of that less people get stairs right than they get flat surface right because in these stairs you know especially when you have concrete formed steps that you're setting stone on top of you know the way to handle that again Is more than just sloping the treads before you put the rock on there. Again, you're supposed to coat them with some kind of waterproofing. Again, we use Master Seal 582. That's become our go-to. It's one of the ones recommended by Indiana limestone. But also, in the the formation of the steps, before you put the stone on, where the tread meets the riser, you should be drilling weep holes in there at roughly a 45-degree angle all the way down through your concrete into the gravel base underneath. So you're not trapping water underneath your rocks, underneath the stair treads. And none of that had been done, of course. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the original concrete formation of the steps wasn't done correctly either. So we had to redo most of that on all the stairs and then, you know, drill, drill our weep holes and do our coating. Yep.
1: Yeah, it's you know I'm just sitting here shaking my head I wish you could see me say like you know a house of this this size and this much money you would think everything would be done right but it's not and you you kind of wonder not to switch subjects what else in this house wasn't done right in addition to the stonework you know and we won't go there <laughs> all right i, yeah. I like unless and you have anything back to more the, to think. the
2: demolition yeah. for a, a moment to give everyone an idea of the scale of this demolition keeping in touch with uh, the guy that was the company that was running dumpsters for us between mud and rock we took out 60 tons wow. 120,000 pounds of mud and rock from from this building before we ever started to put anything back
1: that's a lot of rock and mud
2: <laughs> yes wow yes it is
1: 60 tons all right I, I, I want to switch to the facade unless you have do you have anything to add on the steps or the uh the decking at all
2: no we've we no, pretty, no, no, awesome. we'll, we'll pretty much covered every like expansion joints and stuff like that for the, oh, the yeah. that incorporates deck and everything later
1: all right what about okay let's look, talk about the facade uh what did you do with uh the facade as far as let's let's first talk about, well, we talk about cleaning first or we talk about patching. Uh, I'll let you decide what you want to talk about first.
2: Well, we'll jump into cleaning because that has to happen before patching. But, you know, we had some particular figure out first, and I'm not sure we were able to figure them out, but we did overcome them. And that he had had over the years some guys up there, you know, to try to help him out with the issues that – he was having. So by the time we arrived on the scene, this facade had been coated with who knows what kind of products. Um, You know, there were some silicone based products sprayed on it. Mm. We did a rhylum test, but in in this situation, it's very difficult to get an accurate reading. It took several readings all over the house because you don't know what's been put on the rock, how long it's been there. Right. Is it still on the rock? And then in western North Carolina, the humidity is very high as well, so already your rock is going to be holding moisture. Right. So we did take some Ryland tests. Uh, fortunately, he still had several samples of the stone up there that he had kept indoors from the original build and had not been coated with anything, so I was able to do right. a Ryland test on those samples to just to see how absorbent the stone was. And it was it was like a sponge, which is no surprise.
1: And just to, there, just to stop you there, let to stop you there. Let me stop that? you there for a Go second. Ahead. Let's for for those listening, I uh, just want to pipe in. Uh, and the Rylum test is basically is an absorption test. It's it's basically a little test tube uh, with with markings on it that you place water in and see how fast the stone absorbs stone. So those of you not knowing what a Rylum test is, that's that's the basic. Or you can Google it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I want to make sure everyone understood.
2: Yeah. No, that was that was a good thing to to interrupt for. Then we started cleaning the stone, and I have what is called a Dolphin Integra machine that I brought over from Europe. They're they're based in the UK. They have several products, and we, we use a lot of products from the UK. Like I always tell everyone they've been restoring stone longer than we've been building with.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. So, Explain what a DoF yeah. machine is.
2: and what, Well, a Dolph machine, if you were to see it working, you would automatically think pressure washer, but it's not. It's very low pressure. The, the pressure is such that I can hold my hand in front of the nozzle, all right, say six inches. How it works and what the, the cleaning action comes from is heat. It runs off diesel or kerosene. And the water coming out of the nozzle is about 302 degrees Fahrenheit. So all the the cleaning action comes from heat, not pressure. So we can use it on these really soft stones and not etch them. And in many ways, it cleans better than a pressure washer yeah. because the heat kills all the mold and algae spores and it takes them a much longer time to come back than if you were to use just a pressure washer. It also uses about a quarter to one-third the amount of water that a pressure washer does. So you're not saturating the stone, and you're able to get back on it with patch material or whatever you're going to use much
1: more quickly
2: than than if you were to use a pressure washer. Right.
1: Okay, so you use the doff machine Loop. to clean everything up. Then, then you know, what did you do? To, were there any stains yeah. or issues that you had to pulse?
2: Yeah, well, to give you the scale of the cleaning, so we we know it's a seventeen thousand square foot house, right? The vertical walls of this house was somewhere around thirty thousand square feet. I calculated.
1: Yeah, nice little cabin. So we went over <laughs> every
2: yeah every square inch of this structure with the doff machine so that that was no small feat and we had uh, man lifts out there and then once that was done we still had some heavy duty stains that we had to deal with especially on the the one wall in the back i spent as much time on this one wall almost as i did the, the entire house where we had a lot of the organic material and all this leaves and what had now become compost and this was just leaching down over the wall and creating this very, very deep, uh, black green stain. So we did have to use a poultice on, on a few areas to draw out, draw the stain. And what we found worked there, we used several different, uh, chemicals, but what we found worked the best was a product called one restore. And that comes from EcoCamp here in North Carolina. Mm. And we ended up making a poultice, uh, with that, Bought all of the, (laughs) bought all of the, um, what's the grocery store up there? The Ingles, Bought all the local Ingles out of their flour, we, we (laughs) use something like 150 pounds of flour because that's not what we make most of our poultices out of, you know, you just need a powder to, you know, to, to put on there, to keep the poultice damp. And, uh, use the wonder store as a poultice and, and it worked very well.
1: So you clean the building, removed uh, removed the stains. And then what was ne- well patching, I guess, was next.
2: Yeah. Then we, then we got into patching and the patching was anywhere from very simple flat surface patches to some very ornate leaf work, you know, where the you know carvings had deteriorated over the years or just fall and popped off. And I use primarily for the historic work, there's two products that I use, and you're familiar with both of them. One is up in Maryland, and that is Cathedral Stone Products. Yep. And they manufacture several different patching materials, and the great thing about them is they match the patching material to the porosity of the stone you're working on yep so if i'm working on granite as opposed to sandstone it'll be two different materials because your patching material needs to be able to move in a very similar fashion as the stone you're putting it on right and you've you've seen these problems with a lot of people like to default to epoxy and you've been on jobs where oh, cool. you've seen a, a big chunk of rock on the ground with epoxy yep. on the back of it. Yep. <laughs> and and everyone says, Oh wow, look look how great the epoxy stuck to the stone. But <laughs> what happens there is the epoxy doesn't move and then you have a piece of rock moving and it eventually just pushes the epoxy along with the patch off of the surface. Yep. So Indiana so um cathedral stone products i met with a rep up there and we actually because this particular limestone was so soft we used their product that they manufacture for sandstone yep and then the other product well and i should say also with cathedral stone we took a sample of the original limestone and sent it up there and they color matched it um We'll get into potassium silicates in a moment. but So they can can color match, and they do a very good job of that. The other product that I use for historic restoration is Bondstone's HRM mortar, which is their historic restoration mortar. And what's different about the two is that the HRM mortar can be feathered out, and it has the highest perm rating, 55.2, I believe, that I know of in a product that can be feathered out you know to like a sixteenth um, nice, so once again, very very breathable, but the cathedral stone product, the patch has a minimum thickness of i believe it's a half an inch, it could be a little thinner than that, and then the h r m mortar I can feather out, and both right. are very very breathable.
1: Let's talk about the uh, you had briefly mentioned it, about the carvings, you know, the corbels and all those ornate type uh um, items that were on on that facade. You actually uh, have a carver that works with you, don't you? Or an artist that works with you that can re-carve that stuff. She did a great job.
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, she she's fantastic um and she's so skilled. I'm so lucky to be able to work with her. Her name is Rachel. And any intricate carving she does uh, and she could do much more than that but her skill level was such that say we were working on a statue for example St- say you have a, a statue and the hand fell off and just broke to pieces on the ground she can within reason carve that hand back wow um, yeah,
1: wish i had that just, talent uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I wish I had that talent. That's amazing. I've seen people do that, and it's like, wow.
2: (laughs) So she worked with us over there um, for a large – we didn't need her in the beginning because we're doing demolition and things like that, but she was over there with us on this particular project, uh, just intricate carvings for probably about four months, and I have some great short videos of her, you know, carving some of the leaf work and scrolls and, and things like that, and then and once all the carving was done, we put her skills to use with the potassium silicate because we were color blending all of that as we were going. You know, those veins that run through this, uh, the limestone, that so we were custom matching every single patch with the pat- potassium silicate as we went to blend in that particular area of the limestone.
1: Back up and explain that a little bit more about the use of potassium silicate and what it actually does.
2: Well, potassium silicate—it's been around. Really, it's been around since since the Middle Ages, and the best way—glass.
1: Yep. Good.
2: Is the best is is the best way to explain it, and it's a coating that goes on material. And it forms a bond. It forms a bond with the stone, so it, it's a coating that can last for over a hundred years. And when I say it forms a bond, if you put paint on, it's just going to sit on the surface, right? The the yep. silicate actually forms a bond and becomes an integral part of the surface, which is why it can last so long, and because it. It bonds instead of coats, it's also very, very breathable. Yep. I always explain it like putting velcro together as opposed to putting tape together.
1: yeah, good analogy. Um,
2: you know the, the you know the velcro if, if you look at it, really interlocks all right and then then you have air moving between the interlocking material there. and then you know whereas if you take a piece of tape and you stick those together, there's no – it's all chemical. It's just on the surface. Um, like I said, it's been around since, since the Middle Ages. And, you know, they used to call it liqueur silicum. And uh, the famous German poet, actually – you want a little bit of a history lesson here?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
2: <laughs> I know you like history. But the uh, <laughs> famous German poet – and I'll probably butcher his name, but – Johann Wolfgang um
1: what is his last name?
2: Uh Goethe is how you Anyway, so he was a poet, scholar and um a scientist as well. And and he was quoted as saying something along the lines of what occupied his it for so long was the was the liqueur psyllium and it was a silicone and you know you take pure quartz sand you melt it with a portion of alkali and it gives you this transparent glass essentially and they used to make windows and things out of it. but then you know, it kind of melts in the air and comes this beautiful like a clear liquid but what really really the catalyst for the development of potassium silica was actually King Ludwig of Bavaria. And he had his kingdom up in the Alps and he really loved Italian artwork and he wanted some limestone, but he found that every time he put a limestone fresco in his kingdom up in the Alps, it only lasted a few years. So he got together with a bunch of Bavarian scientists and said, what can we do about this? And that's when they really, Perfected liquid silicate and found that it would bind um, with the color pigment when applied to the surface and last for over a hundred years and it's a naturally you know produced material right. so it's environmentally safe and it lasts lasts a very long time, so we used that uh, on all of our patches. What we found worked best there was to get uh, the neutral base and then we ordered these pigments uh, from italy this one light yellow was the one we found worked best uh, as well as one that was a little bit darker and again the potassium silica came from cathedral stone products and so we would mix this with our pigment going along and rachel was working kind of like a traditional artist there you have the, the big the palette and she would have about three colors on there one would be the base and the other one would be like a little bit darker yellow or light brown that matched the veins. And she would go through and paint all of her patches with the base, and then come back with the other two yellows and recreate the veins in the stone as they were before. So by the time we were finished, tell that we'd done a single patch on the building. Or I don't know, you tell me.
1: <laughs> you saw it. I know it was beautiful. I mean, you would never know. It's so talented. Yeah. So uh, finishing up on the, the actual restoration of the uh, the facade itself. So what else? We cleaned it. You patched it. Uh, did you put any treatments on it at all?
2: Yes, we used, and this was at your recommendation, actually a limestone densifier.
1: Yep.
2: And I'll let you explain how that works.
1: Yeah, the, the densifiers, the way I explain densifiers is if you imagine taking a a glass and you put sand in there. So you've got this loose sand, right? And what if you were to pour Elmer's glue in that sand and glue all those sand particles back together? That's basically what a densifier does. It actually takes loose materials and glues it back together, but it does it in such a way that it's still breathable. So that that's a simple explanation. So I recommended this simply because this stone is so soft and it's in an environment it should not be in that the densifier will help extend the longevity or the age of this particular stone.
2: Yes. And then we use, again, at your recommendation, this, um, actually we ended up using something else, but we started, because they didn't have enough. You call I remember that flyer <laughs> and ask for a, for 120 gallons of densifier. And, uh, yeah, the huh? first question is, what the hell are you doing, right? <laughs> and the second is, uh, let me see if I can get 120 gallons. But we used NB Stone here in North Carolina, and they have this limestone densifier from Faber, which again is is an Italian company. We bought out all that they had and used it on really the upper parts of the building, um, you know, the eggs, the carvings, things like that, and then went with a product, uh, I think, from SmartCrete, called that Densifier XL or Densifier L, which is very similar, uh, at least in quality, to the the Faber limestone densifier from Italy. So we sprayed the entire exterior of this house uh, with the densifier. After the cleaning had been done, right, after we had gone through and cut in movement joints, after the patching, after the silicate, now we have to go back to this 30 or 40,000 square foot facade and coat it all with a uh, densifier and we had two, right. we had two man lifts going throughout this project scaffolding just wasn't the right answer here because we would have had to, the amount of scaffolding for that building would have been insane but we really needed to be able to move uh to clean the spray um so on and so forth and and man lifts were with our eight way all
1: right now, as far as some of these corbels that were falling off uh how many of those did you find, and how did you reattach them
2: uh, I don't remember how many we found so, some of them were attached, and some of them were not um, so the corbels the corbels are one the big thing we found that was not attached was a lot of the water tables underneath uh-huh. the windows, and these are large pieces of stone 24 inches long approximately you know 8 to 10 inches tall and 10 to 12 inches deep and you know carved with a with a profile still a really large piece of stone that they had only attached with whatever adhesive on the back and a lot of these we found the only reason they hadn't fallen is because they were fitted in so tight That when they came loose and tilted forward, the back corner caught on whatever happened to be above them, so they were just held in by tension alone. Wow. And yeah, and given how soft this stone is, that wasn't gonna hold it very much longer. And this was second or third story. And the stones are large enough that you know if, if it comes off. It kills you. Yeah. Even if you're wearing a hard hat, it's heavy enough that it's probably going to break your neck.
1: Yep. So
2: very dangerous. Um, So once we found the first few that were obviously, you know, coming loose, then we checked them all. But to fix them, we, we pulled them all off, you know, drilled them made sure that we had stanchel behind them to anchor them to. Then we went back with, you know, our adhesive that we were using, put it up there, and drilled our anchor bolts through the stone into the blocking behind them now, and then patched the holes in similar fashion as we had,
1: uh, you know, patched everything in the building. Which is the way they should have been done originally. They should have been mechanically anchored. Yes. So, so all in all, what, what you know, time-wise, give the folks some kind of an idea from start to finish. How many months did you spend on this project?
2: We were five and a half to six months. That we we were up there uh, six days a week. Wow. Six days a week. And these yep. these were mainly ten ten hour days. I would say would be the average. Some a little less, some a little more. Big project, and probably running an average of um, eight to ten people a day. At least big eight, project, maybe ten.
1: Big project, yeah, so,
2: huge huge project.
1: So what are you recommending for uh, keeping this thing looking good? Now you're going to go back there, I guess periodically. He's hiring you to go back on a what? twice a year or something like that?
2: Well, we we go back once a year.
1: Once a year. We're going to be going
2: up there this July. So, and, you know, we were up there last year as a follow-up and all the, all the flat surfaces, everything was working as it should. There was really not much for us to do. We did have a couple of areas to touch up. Um, mainly that one big back wall there that was kind of the bane of the whole project. Um, A little bit of, there again had been some leaves that had gotten trapped up there. We had to go back up and make some slight adjustments there, but you know, to keep it, especially the Indiana limestone, you know, just a small, and you recommend this too, I think just a small electric pressure washer go Mm -hmm. through there once a year want don't seal it don't let anyone tell you it needs to be sealed yep you know just small pressure washer something you know five or six hundred psi if that
1: yep. you know More knock pressure. the
2: pollen off knock the bloom off the limestone yeah and go from there
1: yep it was a great great project i mean i think i went up there what four times during during that uh uh, during the progress of it. And it's just a phenomenal, you did a phenomenal job. You really did. They did a really good job. And I know the, uh, owner was very happy with it as well. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning, we're going to be putting together a, uh, a, a a presentation, whether it's, you know, probably a little bit of video, a little bit of slideshows, so you can all get a, an idea of the scope of this project. And, the size of this little cabin. <laughs> uh, man, yeah. And there's the a scope of this. But you know what's interesting uh, is that you ran into another project with the same stone not too long after that, didn't you? Yeah.
2: Actually, <laughs> we're there now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> doing
2: um, some more work on that building. Yeah. So I think, I don't know, in the United States, there's what did we find? Eight or 10 buildings?
1: Yeah. That there has wasn't this many.
2: Particular stone? Yeah, it wasn't many. And we've we've now worked on two of them, so we're crazy. we're quickly becoming the, the experts for restoring uh, later limestone.
1: Lime lime That's okay. crazy.
2: So we did did run into another, and that one's here in in Charlotte, where where I'm at. So, right. and we're dead work, working there now.
1: And you still get you you still get freezing temperatures there in the wintertime, though, don't you?
2: we do yeah not not as much as we did say 15 years ago but we right. do have a handful of days where it, it gets below free you know but the the big thing here isn't so much the freezing as in the the temperature variation within a day right At this time of year we can wake up and it'll be 40 degrees and then go to 85 yep and and you know that creates a lot of problems.
1: Oh, absolutely. And
2: that that amount of movement in such a short period of time, and we should uh, probably touch on movement joints since we're here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. I almost forgot that one. Yeah.
2: And, so we, And I, you I said. Had no- it.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say you mentioned movement joints before, and you've, we found huh, you found none on <laughs> this particular job. So. Uh, talk about that. What you ended up doing?
2: Yeah, well, and um, and I think I I said it wrong earlier. I said expansion joints. It, it's a movement joint, All right? Because this this thing goes both ways, and there's really, especially a project size, there's really a lot that a lot of thought that can go into these correctly. You know, that one porch we had a run of, I think, 180 feet. Something like that. Wow. And if you take Indiana limestone in particular, it's so dense, it has a very low coefficient of movement. Something like only five-eighths in 100 feet, which is pretty small. Yes. But the big mistake I find when guys do expansion joints – that movement joints there, I said it again, movement joints (laughs) is, is that, you know, all these products are touted for how much they can stretch. Right. Yep. If you, if you want to make a, a rep's brain boil, ask them how much it can compress. And it's something, even the best, Silicones in the world can only compress about 50% before failure. Right. So if I have an eighth-inch joint and my material can only compress 50%, I don't have a joint that can handle an eighth of movement. I have a joint that can handle one-sixteenth of movement. Right. So Indiana limestone, if it moves five-eighths and 100 feet, and I put in five one-eighth joints... I haven't adequately covered the movement necessary exactly. because each joint will really only handle one 16th, not an yep. eighth. And, and that is where I find most movement joints fail. So you either double up the one eighth joints there or just, or make them bigger. Right. But it, it's important to stress that point is that it's a movement joint and that the stone itself, Expands and contracts with yep. with water, with temperature, with with everything. And when you say movement, that should cover movement from all of those things. Yep. Maybe, maybe the structure underneath the stone is moving. all right Well, that that's one thing. But then, and, and the way they determine this, um, the coefficient of movement is they heat it up from something like zero to 120 degrees, and then cool it back down again. And that's how they determine, you know, what, how much this, these materials move, um, you know, it absorbs, it gets full of water, it expands, August comes around, it dries out, it contracts. And the the other thing is that a movement joint shouldn't be, it should only be attached to two surface, to two sides, the movement joint, whatever product you're using goes all the way through and is now adhered to the substrate underneath your stone, that'll cause it to fail too. Because when it stretches, it's going to pull up, it's got to pull apart, separate from one of the three sides it's attached to. So the use of backer rod and then your, whatever you're filling the joint with.
1: You know, you hit on a really interesting topic that, that I really like a lot. And that is, you know, movement of, of the actual stone itself so many factors will cause that stone to move, but you can get different coefficients of movement depending on, well, let me give you an example. A wet stone will move differently than a dry stone will. Yes. And people just don't realize that. And they, you know, you, you think a stone is being solid as a rock. No, no pun intended. And you know, that's, that's it. It doesn't do anything. Well, it's, it's a lot. And if you don't take into consideration those the, the movement of that particular stone and the structure, you're going to end up with issues, and we see it every day.
2: On the vertical part of this building, part of what we did – so every, every change in plane was grouted hard, mortared hard. Mm-hmm. So part of what we had to do on this particular restoration was go through and cut out all the mortar and all the vertical changes of plane – And then make that a movement joint.
1: Right. Did you use urethane? 100%
2: silicone on this one.
1: Oh, you did silicone. Okay.
2: Yeah. And then on some of them, probably overkill, but Lidacol makes a primer right that they recommend if you're doing a movement joint in a pool something like that that's just going to be sitting in water all the time they make a primer that you put down before you put in their silicone and it just you know allows the silicone to stick a little bit better so we we did that primer on a lot of our movement joints over there
1: perfect
2: and then put in the silicone
1: right I'd like to talk about your website in closing here, but before I do, did we did we leave anything out? I know we covered a lot.
2: <laughs> I'm 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 sure that on this project we left a lot of things out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you
1: know, you were there for six months. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So we we have a new website. You have a new website for your restoration company. Tell yeah, a little bit we're coming
2: up of the historical restoration that it uh, justified its own thing. So we have a new website and a new name for the, the restoration side of the business. Uh, we're calling it Eighth Day Stone Restoration. Uh, that website is up and running now and we'll have various social media aspects and a blog and, and things like that. Actually, I'm going to talk to you about that because I'm hoping to be able to uh, use a some of your material on our blog.
1: Oh, sure, absolutely, definitely. Well, Kenneth. and then
2: for the, for those people <laughs> oh, okay. wondering, why do you call eighth day stone restoration? Well, in, in these historic buildings, and in history in general, the eighth day it was always kind of a term that meant you know new birth, new life, regeneration. So, if you're in an old cathedral and see a baptismal with eight sides that's why so it's it was not just a haphazard name it does have some uh historical there
1: i like it i like it a lot so how do people uh that want to have their uh historic stuff restored or anything restored for that matter dealing with stone uh where how do they get a hold of you well
2: my my phone number is the easiest Um, okay seven zero four eight five eight two two four six and then of course the website if you want to see the work a lot of the photos on the website now are of the project that we were just talking about eighth day stone and then the other company uh, blue com, and then we're all over social media under those same names
1: great well, sir, it's been and, a pleasure. Uh, you know, but, but before you yeah, call
2: guys. me, you may want to call Fred for a consult.
1: And <laughs> yeah, we can we can definitely help you there. At least at least do the first evaluation and uh, see what it needs to be done, and then let Ken and his crew come in and uh, do the great job they did on this 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 uh, this building was just uh incredible work. Yeah, I mean, it was really really and, pleasing. And I would them.
2: like to
1: go ahead. no, go ahead. You were saying.
2: No, I was going to say, mentioning my crew, I would like to give some, just some props to my my crew. It's, I have a very talented, very smart team that I work with. I hear a lot of people out there complaining about help and about the people that they work with. And I really, really have nothing to complain about. Um, They're all smart. They're all talented and they all work very hard. And You know, so I have a lot of solutions, but a lot of time my team has better solutions. And so this project and the success of this project, as well as, you know, other projects, you know, I I get a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, I'm at the forefront. I, you know, people see me, but it's really a team effort. And I couldn't do it without the people that I work with.
1: No, absolutely. I mean. We all come from different backgrounds. We all approach problems differently, and having that—I uh, like to call it a mastermind. You know that that whole team there is definitely helpful. Yes, it's what makes things what makes things what it's what make things work. So great. righty, sir. If yeah. you've done nothing else to add, I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, the you know, folks listening to this know the podcast is now up, it's not up right now as we're doing this live, <laughs> but it, it we'll we'll be up here probably get it up uh, uh, next week. I got some editing to do on it, and then uh, keep you know look forward to those uh, those photographs on on the uh, Eighth Day Stone Restoration website, and uh, you can kind of see what we're talking about uh, uh, as we discussed here today. So Ken, thank you very much, and uh, we'll be in touch, buddy.
2: Sounds good. Thank you, Dr. Fred.
0: Take care. Alrighty, folks, that was my pre-recorded podcast with Ken Lambert, a Blue Toolbox. If you guys need any historic restoration work done, that would be the man to call. Also, if you need any consulting work done, uh, in other words, evaluating the project, looking at what needs to be done historically, then holler for me. My email is fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep setting those tiles, polishing that stone, and fabricating those tops. Later, my friends. Thank you Toughskin, one of our gold sponsors. Marble etches and stains, Tufskin guarantees it will not. Tufskin provides a unique product and installation service anywhere in the USA with the proprietary stone laminate products. They protect marble countertops with an acid, oil, and waterproof guarantee. That's right, it's now possible to install marble, onyx, and travertine countertops without the worry of etching and staining from common household items like wine, lemon, coffee, or other acidic foods. People have been trying to figure this out for thousands of years, and Tuffskin Surface Protection has done it. Available in gloss and satin to match the countertop finish, visit them online at TuffskinProtection.com. That's T-U-F-F to learn more.